This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join me as we seek out new ideas and new realms of perception and relationship in the world. If dogs run free, why not we? Across the swooping plain. My ears hear a symphony of two mules, trains, and rain. best is always yet to come That's what they explain to me Just do your thing You'll be king If dogs run free graduating, well, actually graduate students in the education program here at Goddard. Ben Hutchins is graduating, 
and Gina Forbes, you're not graduating yet. Not quite yet. Not quite? Yeah, I have two more semesters, actually. Two more semesters. Yeah. So good morning, both of you. Good morning. Good morning. So um, I chose that song for Ben <laughs> in honor of his study. Um, one of the things I, I love to hear about is how, how people find Goddard and how how they, you know, I hear a lot of interesting, sometimes magical stories about how people find Goddard, and then we'll get into more of your experience of being at Goddard. But. Yeah, all right, I guess I'll start. Ben and I are looking at each other like, who's going to be the one? Um, yeah, so Goddard's actually been on my radar for quite a while um, since... I was an undergrad. I've known folks that have come here, um, but um, I never gave it much thought for myself um, until probably like 2013, 2014, when I made a career change. I was in the birth professions before. Um, I was a doula and a childbirth educator and a midwifery assistant, and um, I switched things up, and I got a job in the field of education um, at a preschool. And... So I started thinking about furthering my education and um, wanting to delve more into education. And the director of the school that I work at is a Goddard alum. Um, she came here many years ago, but um, she's been the biggest advocate for Goddard. And so I searched, I took classes um, at a local college in Maine where I live and it wasn't the right fit. And I came here on like an open house and like watched the intro video and wept because it was just like so it felt so right for me to come here um so it's kind of the short sto story of of how I found it and and decided it was right for me to come back to school well we have we have an hour and a half so um <laughs> you don't have you don't have to brevity is 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 not necessary at all so if you have any any stories or any elaboration feel free cool yeah I'll, I'll hold off there for now, but I'm sure more will come. <laughs> okay. Um, <clears throat> so I had actually, I hadn't heard of Goddard until, um, I would say several months before moving to Vermont from Virginia. Uh, my wife and I knew that, that we wanted to move to Vermont and, uh, we were both applying for jobs, and one of the places she applied for a job was at Goddard. Uh, so by the time we had moved up here, uh, she, she was offered a job there. Um, and sh she knew about Goddard, but I hadn't. Uh, certainly by her working here and, and my being around and, and learning more about the school, I, I immediately had interest in, in attending. It's also a very short story, but. <laughs> <laughs> so what's it been like being a student at Goddard? What, what's the exp experience been like? Like there are these eight-day residencies and it's, it's, it's an immersion, kind of an intensive immersion experience. What, what's that like for you guys? Um, I think for me it's been... It's been intense. Um, the experience of residency is something that I haven't ever experienced before, just in um, in the fact that, yeah, you come and you're a part of this community for 
eight or nine days and you get to know people really deeply and you um, delve into all of these new ideas pretty quickly and at a really fast pace. And then you're sent off to go home and to continue that inquiry um, and to follow whatever sparks of interest have come up on your own. Um, And uh, as I mentioned in my search for Goddard, I've been lucky to have someone who's been a mentor to me who's been through this and so who knows but um I think stepping out of residency and doing the work is is great in the fact that I can be in my community I don't have to leave my job um I'm a parent as well so um I do a lot of my work in the middle of the night and um it just works well for my lifestyle but um there's some challenges too just in um feeling like when you walk away uh the i i wish that my goddard people were with me um, more throughout the semester so um yeah it's it's definitely a unique way of learning and i find that i have to really be like self-motivated and take um initiative but it's also like this really beautiful process that has a lot of freedom and flexibility to um to like allow oneself to to really do experiential learning and if you come up with a study plan and you want to change ideas mid-semester you can do that and um, so that part's been really beautiful for me because that is how I learn best by doing and by following interests and and whatnot. So who've been your advisors? Um, I've worked with Micah Garland um, for the two previous semesters and I'm not sure for this semester who I'll be working with. I'm keeping my fingers crossed because I love Micah. If you hear this, Micah, I love you. Um, but, um, yeah, she's, she's been great. Um, she's got kind of this, uh, holistic lens and sort of, um, I'm going to call it a witchy approach. Um, I think she's like willing to talk to me about things like how tarot readings like impact um, my like self-evaluation of my work, which is so cool because where else could I talk to an advisor about like, oh, I did a tarot reading on myself this morning and it's brought this feeling up about my work at Goddard. So that's been nice. So I'm really curious how you, how you work some of these elements from your own life into your Goddard study and how that works. You just touched on on Micah's acceptance of that mm-hmm. and also about the kind of cross-pollination of ideas that may be occurring between mm-hmm. some of your fellow students because I know there's a lot of that can't help but have that ha- happening. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, my work... And um, my work in like the preschool where I teach and my work at Goddard are very intertwined um, and both are informed by my entire being um, and life experience and just approach. Um, And one of the things that sort of, as I mentioned before, the, the birth work that I was doing um, that actually led me to, to study something called somatic experiencing, which is um, a trauma healing modality that really um, is about embodiment and um, resolving places of stuck energy as a result of trauma in the body. And um, I was studying that to support clients who have been through trauma through the birth experience or um, in their own lives 
but uh, it turned into so much more and it became a major focus of interest for me. And um, as I did my own work and my own embodiment, I kind of found this new path. And so um, I've been trying to weave together the pieces of um, it, what it looks like to have an embodied educational practice um, myself and with the kiddos that I teach. And that has been fully supported here um, in every way, encouraged. And um, yeah, I feel like it's been a major point of focus that's been really supported by advisors and staff and whatnot. Mm, that's fascinating stuff. Mm-hmm. Back in my earlier days, I, I did a fair amount of rebirthing mm-hmm. back, back in the 70s. And um, my last girlfriend does Essie. Oh, great. And yeah, trauma, trauma work uh, in education. I mean, the, the combination of trauma work in education. I think having teachers who, who are, who are practiced and skilled in that mm-hmm. approach. I think that's, that's an amazing combination. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. And it's interesting. Why did you choose to change your, your career path from being a doula and uh, birthing? person because I had a I had a girlfriend many years ago who was who was very into the whole birthing thing and and I also had a, a close friend who was a doula back in San Diego um, so I <laughs> I'm interested in all these things and yeah it's design. great work it's um, it's still very close to my heart but um, in all honesty a leap of faith and some practical reasons um, Practically, it's just, uh, it was hard to be on call 24-7 and have a young child. Um, And uh, I just struggled financially to make it work in that field, in that profession. And um, I took a somatic experiencing training. um, And I said to someone up here in the training, I'm just looking for a change right now. And I'm not sure what it is. And... um, she looked at me and was like, I do. And three hours later, I had an interview at Roots and Fruits Preschool in South Portland. Um, and I went to the interview and I got the job. And, you know, a year and a half later, I signed up at Goddard and the rest is history. So, so why preschoolers? Um, partly because I landed there and, um, and it just felt right. It was a fit. But I also think it's an extension of thinking about, um, I mean, it's preschool is part of an early childhood component and um, studying prenatal development and uh, the first year of life so closely. I think that there's a natural link to just extending that and looking at three, four, five-year-olds. I love working with them because most of them are just embodied. They're my teachers. Um, and I, they're a mirror to me. Like I go in on a bad day and they tell me and they know. Um, so part of it is just selfish. Like I just love it and I love them. And um, it's also been really cool to start to think about building um, a somatic experiencing practice and potentially working with like families and some kiddos. Um, and... Uh, and having the experience of knowing like what um, prenatal development and the birth process, like how that fits into 
how our lives are shaped and how our nervous systems grow um, has been a strength and just a, an interest. So um, I've worked a little bit with some older kids too, like second and third grade. And um, it's cool, but it's really heady. And in our educational system, um, it's just so focused on the cognitive that it's in preschool. I get to have dance parties every morning and do yoga with the kids. And we meditate every day. And um, so that's really a blessing to working with that age group. Mm. It's my favorite age group too, yeah. kids. Yeah. I'm, I'm, <laughs> once they start going to school, they start learning all the all the worst tricks from each other, mm-hmm. all, the, all the worst things they learn from, their, from adults around them and everything, and they're cross-pollinating all the worst things. And before that, yeah, it's amazing how you're, you're getting to be with these like raw, embodied beings yeah. who, who haven't been brainwashed yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> or, or less so. Yeah, less so. definitely. Yeah. Less so, yeah. yeah. Already a bit, but less so, for sure. Mm-hmm. So Ben, what what's your experience at Goddard been like? In? It's hard to know where to start. Um, I I guess what immediately jumps out at me is uh, the I guess the confidence uh, that being here has given me, uh, having great advisors and great friends that have really supported work. Um, and the amount of writing, the amount of reading, uh, the all of that work uh, has been something that I certainly didn't think that I was capable of before coming here. Um, but having that type of encouragement um, along the way uh, has been has been really incredible. Um, yeah, had you have, had you gone to school before before coming to Goddard? I did. Uh, I went to Guilford College in Greensboro, North Carolina, which is uh, kind of a medium sized or smaller medium sized uh, Quaker school, and uh, it's I was a religious studies major, and so initially, when I came to to Goddard, um, that sort of the path that I was looking for was something that kind of um, so, some type of focus that sort of combined uh, religious or spirituality uh, with education and to sort of study that and see how that, you know, af- affects um, one's educational experience. Um, but after coming here, I think I realized that I wanted... Um, yeah, I just, I just wanted to pursue a different path within my education. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's one of the great things about Goddard is the flexibility. Um, and so even after a semester when I was like, wait, this isn't at all what makes sense for me right now, you know, to be focusing on that, on that, then I was able to change that and, and align it more with, with what I was, um, passionate about. So there's two, two things I sort of want to touch on. One is, um, the, the comparison of your experience at from Guilford College to your experience at Goddard, what those experiences are like, and also your background, where you where you come from, and and sure. what interested you in pursuing religious studies. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, well, first, I would just say I'm I'm from Southwestern Virginia, 
a very small town called Stewart, uh, which I'm sure nobody listening probably knows where that is, but it's near Roanoke, Virginia, um, and near uh, not too far from Greensboro, North Carolina, from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, uh, but it's it's right on the border. Uh, that's where I lived you know, th- throughout the first 18 years of my life, and then I moved uh, throughout North Carolina. Um, Guilford College is a, is a really incredible place. It, uh, it's really neat. They have a very, a very large continuing education program there. So about half of the students there are traditional students and about half are continuing ed, uh, somewhere along the lines of a thousand, uh, of each. Um, and so I think that that, uh, it makes the classes very interesting. Uh, there's a lot more, a lot more diversity, uh, um, more diversity of opinion. Um, so it's it's a it's a really incredible place. Uh, there are parts of it that would look like any other school. You know, there there is a, a very small football team. Well, I guess the football team's not small, but they're not they're not very <laughs> very well known, I guess. But um, you know, they have football and baseball teams and things like that. But then. Now, there are no fraternities or sororities, or um, there are ways in which they hold on to traditional uh, traditional Quaker values, um, and then there are other ways that they would look more like a mainstream school. Uh, but it was a great experience, uh, and studying studying religious studies there uh, was was just it was a great experience. I had some great professors there. Uh, most of the classes that I that I took would would have been more in in, uh, in the area of, of uh, Quaker studies or of Buddhist studies. I think that I I got out of I got out of there in, uh, with the religious studies degree, probably taking one or two classes in, in I guess Christianity. Um, but it was great because I think um, that was certainly important. But it was nice to have that. Um, as a part of a much larger religious uh, studies experience. Were you brought up in a Quaker family? Uh, no, I wasn't. I, w- I was actually brought up uh, Southern Baptist. Oh. Yeah. So, <laughs> so how, what drew you to, to Guilford and, and, and religious studies, Quaker and Buddhist? And... Uh, actually, I, I think my interest... In religious studies, probably was largely influenced by uh, being brought up in in the Southern Baptist Church. Um, I was always I was very interested in the stories, um, particularly of the Old Testament, and going to church consistently every Sunday, you know, uh, usually twice on Sundays was, I think, exposed me to a lot that at the time I was probably, as a teenager, probably pretty resentful of, and I didn't really appreciate it. But I think later, um, for some of the things that I was exposed to that I I still don't appreciate and that I don't like, um, there was a lot that I gained from that, um, that maybe other folks don't have the same opportunity uh, it definitely, when I got to school and I was in this in, this religious studies environment, it was interesting to see that my background 
uh, for religious studies just by being brought up um, in that environment was, was a pretty firm foundation. And that might have been part of why I was also interested in studying something other, other than uh, uh, you know, Christian studies or Christianity. I, that said, I mean, I, I've always been, not always, but um, since, since I was a teenager, um, I've had quite a bit of interest just in, in religious studies and in various wor- world religions. Um, it's just, I guess there's not really a way, uh, a specific thing that really caused that. It's just always been there. It's what I enjoyed reading about when I was young. I, I can relate to that. When I went to college before I ended up dropping out because it, I realized it wasn't my path, I took Eastern religions my first semester and then second semester. I don't really remember, what, but I, I know I was f- focusing on some... I know I discovered Taoism, which really turned me on at, back, back in those days. And um, so I can, I can very much relate to that interest. So, um, I have a question for Ben. Oh yeah, <laughs> go ahead. So I know you, and I know some of your work post religious studies. But um, how was there a process of going from, like you mentioned, you came to Goddard, and you were kind of interested in continuing that, and then can you talk a little bit about? what you did get interested in and how that shift happened? Sure. Uh, do, you, do, you, do you mean specific once? I don't know. Could you repeat that again, maybe? I'm yeah, sorry. I'm just like, I know your work and I'm curious how you went, like what what happened going from, you know, coming to Goddard and thinking this was going to be, you're going to study religious studies and then how did you leap from there to what you did study, and maybe you right. could talk a little bit about what you studied. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you just took, you just saved me from having to ask that question, which would have... Cool, would have sorry. Been, no, no, no. no I, was, I was wondering, should I, should I stay with Ben, or should I go to you? And you took, you took care of that decision. Thank you. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I guess first I'll be a little, a little more specific uh, about when I did get to Goddard, what it was. Uh, specifically that I plan to study. What what I was really interested in was to look specifically at Quaker schools and to see the way that a friend's school um, yeah, I guess, I guess there's not one specific thing about that, but, but just to study that, um, I just sort of had a broad idea of what I wanted to do and nothing specifically. Um, throughout that, that, and that was kind of the direction I was going. My, a lot of my first semester, I spent reading a lot of, a lot of critical theory. Um, and at some point, th- I, there's not really a specific time or a specific event that happened. It must have been gradual. Mm-hmm. You know, I, 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 don't know, I don't know at what point my, my interest changed. Uh, but certainly there was a shift uh, in the way that I was viewing the world and the way that, that um, yeah, just what was going on, what was going on for me. And so 
throughout this first semester issues of of uh, of animal rights, of animal liberation, um, became more and more important to me. And this is something. The, this was a subject that continued to come up for me uh, since about the time that I was 18. Uh, most of the time, between the age of 21 and up until that point, uh, I had been uh, vegetarian. Uh, I wasn't a very good one, and often I would take periods, you know, where where that just wasn't important to me, and I wouldn't follow through with it. Um, I don't know if it was the this new uh, studying of, of critical theory or these new questions that I was just beginning to ask, but a lot of these same issues came back up, and I felt a different need to ask the questions that I wouldn't allow myself to ask before, um, to go further with those questions and to be willing to lose something along the way, uh, whether that's um, my pride or whether that was uh, some sense of security. But to, I guess to make myself vulnerable and to be willing to admit that there might be something really, that some of my behaviors might be uh, very disturbing. So, And feel free to elaborate on those specific <laughs> questions and behaviors that you sure. were questioning. Sure. Um, so at some, <laughs> at some point when these questions began coming back up for me, um, I had been, you know, flesh or meat was something that that wasn't really brought into our home at that point like for Jessica and I uh, even though you know throughout my life I might I might eat it it wasn't something that we usually let into our house but I had mostly replaced that in a lot of ways with cheese uh, with dairy and I had allowed myself this idea that if I wasn't killing something uh, then my behavior was ethical. And with this new desire to, to analyze behavior and to analyze ideas on a deeper level, it was something that I suppose naturally carried over into these new questions I had. And so I began reading... Uh, some books that really stuck out, like Carol J. Adams, The Sexual Politics of Meat, um, Marjorie Spiegel's The Dreaded Comparison, Peter Singer's Animal Liberation. Uh, these books I read, and, and many, many, many more. And as I read one book after the other, I realized that there was something deeply disturbing that was going on. There was a behavior that I was committing that was disturbing. It was something that I needed to, to analyze. Um, and so that, that analysis and finally, uh, was probably the, the final push was when I watched the film Earthlings, um, which is, uh, a, a really incredible film, uh, for me, certainly the most powerful thing that I've ever, that I've ever witnessed. Um, it's, it's an incredible film. And that was that was the final push that 
in some ways probably cemented uh, my veganism and how I know that this is something that will will continue for me uh, throughout the entirety of my life. Can you talk about that film, Earthlings, and what it was, what was in that film that moved you so so powerfully? Sure. So the film uh, might be described as a as a as an illustration or as a survey of the way that we as humans use non-human animals. Uh, so it it uh, it shows the way that that we use non-human animals for for uh, entertainment. Uh, how we use non-human animals uh, for their milk, for their flesh, uh, the way that we we breed uh, animals like dogs, cats, and the consequences that those that those have. It's very raw. It's uh, um, unlike many, un- unlike uh, like a five-minute pedo video uh it puts those images which are real images um into a context and it shows more than just this very gory immediate um shocking thing it shows us it's an hour and a half of very similar instances but it's showing it within a context what's happening why it's happening um, and what can be done to stop it from happening. Uh, the soundtrack, uh, Moby does the soundtrack, which makes it, um, if anyone's familiar with his music, which I'm sure plenty are, uh, it's very, very powerful ambient music um, that just goes along amazingly with what's being shown. And it's narrated by Joaquin Phoenix. And uh, the director is, is Sean Monson. Um, and he's... He's done some other films. I think one called Unity, and I think I think this is part of maybe a trilogy. But it's uh, it's available on Vimeo if anyone's interested. And also, I a lot of times you can see it for free on YouTube, but uh, it's not always up. The title of the film Earthlings is interesting because when I when I first heard that title, immediately I thought Earthlings, people. And I think it's really easy for us to think of ourselves as Earthlings and not not think of anybody else. But really, Earthlings includes all life, all everything on this Earth. Yeah, absolutely. And, absolutely. And that I th- I think really goes to the core of this issue, mm-hmm. doesn't it? This this lack of understanding, lack of lack of sense of of inclusion, of recognition of of life. Absolutely. And I think as you're talking about language and you're talking about earthlings and this idea of of us as earthlings, and that's certainly, you know, that's that's how I had always viewed it. I think that we use language, our use of language is really important. Um, and certainly, you know, we, we set up this this dualism as we do with with many many things, but this this animal human dualism, which is false, 
right? This this idea that there there are humans and then there are animals. <coughs> you know, despite the fact that we are animals, it's something that we don't want want to admit. Um, so we're willing to give certain rights to humans and to 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 allow certain things for humans. But even though non-human animals can enjoy those same rights, um, we're not willing to, to give that to them because we've, we have this understanding of this, of this duality, that it, there's us and them, right? There's straight and gay, there's male and female. And so we use these dualisms as a way to perpetuate violence. Um, and they also, not only do they per- perpetuate this violence, but they, they further perpetuate the stereotypes that are associated. Um, we, you know, we, we believe, you know, we set up these, these categories of strong and weak um, to go along with the dualisms and categories that we've already set up. And uh, it leads to a lot of violence. It's power dynamics, mm-hmm. essentially. Absolutely. Yeah. These are questions that I have, I've thought about at various times throughout my life. I have been a vegetarian for many years at throughout a large part of my life. I was almost a vegan. I included raw butter in my diet. Um, yeah, these are, these are things that I've wrestled with. I even, I mean, there, there's the notion that if you're going to eat meat, you should, you, should be, you should have the experience of actually killing it to have that visceral experience so that you know what, what it means to to create meat in that sense for eating. And several years ago, I actually went to a neighbor's farm to observe the killing of ducks and chickens. I did it twice, and it was was really disturbing. I couldn't, in all honesty, I could not... um, envision myself being able to do that in my life in order to eat meat and I was I was surprised I mean I guess I, I could understand how people could become sensitized to it and become numb to the to the experience of killing other creatures but I, I realized I would never want to become numb in that way so that was that was a that was a telling experience for me yeah, I, I think that that, for me, sort of brings up this thought that, um, re- you know, th- this idea within our society that becoming sensitized to, to the killing of non-human animals is, is this admirable trait, um, rather than something that's, you know, that's that's to be mourned or that's sad. You know, there, there aren't, I can't think of any other instances of, of killing where this uh, where we encourage this and that we see it as a as a strength or a, a valuable thing to become to become desensitized to it right um, it it shuts down our mirror neurons, which mm-hmm. are an incredibly important part of our human experience mm-hmm. and we have a caller welcome you're on the air hey there um, you don't have to be numb to it um I was a vegan for a number of years, and I raise animals for meat, and they bring a lot of joy, they bring a lot of fertility, 
they bring the blessing of nourishing food throughout the winter. And I think you're really acknowledging a lot of important things, that there's a lack of recognition in the general public of the fact that meat-eating is a violent act. There's no way to get around the fact that you're killing something else and eating it. And if you go to the grocery store and you buy your hamburgers all wrapped up in plastic and little pre-made patties, you're sort of losing this connection that you have with this thing that you're eating. And it's really the same is true for, you know, the bagels that you buy from, you know, the flour that was milled in some distant city. Or the carrots that you purchase that are pre-washed that you didn't have the experience of eating and crawling on your hands and knees and pick up from the earth and clean, clean yourself, you know, it's it's all it all comes back to a lack of connection and a lack of acknowledgement. Um, another point is that in order for one thing to live, something else must die, and that alternative sources of protein come along with their own little devils. Like cultivation of soybeans means habitat loss all over the world. Cultivation of wheat, cultivation of annuals, is very destructive and entails lots of tillage, lots of tractor use, lots of carbon release. Grass-fed meat is one of the solutions to feeding the world. Um, it's not the only solution. Uh, I like vegetables, too, but um, people need to acknowledge the inherent violence in eating meat and love the animals and treat them with respect. Meat eating isn't the problem. Factory farming is the problem, and that goes for meat, vegetables, annual grains, all of it. Uh, monocultures are the problem, and we need diversity, and we need unity, and vegans need to talk to meat eaters, and um, I, I respect your views, um, and uh, yeah, I guess that's all I have to say. Thank you. Ben Ben wants to respond to you, so you might want to stay on. I mean, that's up to you. Sure. Yeah, so I guess... One thing, there was a lot there, uh, so I'll take a couple points to respond to. Uh, one is this, is this idea of, of death um, that I believe you mentioned the soybean and how that, that kills animals. But what veganism is trying to do is to work to minimize suffering. And so... When we talk about sentient species, primarily, you know, we're talking about animals that have the ability to feel pain, the ability to experience pain. And so the insects and those animals that are being killed, uh, I don't think that many vegans are under some idea that they don't kill animals in their eating of food. Uh, what I think most would, would claim to try to do is to minimize the amount of suffering. Uh, so, you know, the bugs, the insects, these things, they don't, they don't have a central nervous system. They don't have the capacity to experience pain uh, in the same way that a cow or that a chicken would. Uh, those are animals with a central nervous system. They're animals that can suffer beyond a doubt. Um, with regard to grass-fed beef being a solution, uh, for, for the troubles, I think that would be really difficult. Right now, uh, yearly, in the United States alone, 
9 billion land animals are killed. So those animals can't just be replaced with free-range animals. And in fact, if we took the number of cows that we raise now in the United States alone and made those cows free-range and gave them the acre and a half, to, uh, really between one and two acres that they would need uh, for a beef cow, it would actually take up one half of the world's land that's non-ice land. Uh, so it's not a solution. It's not a real solution. Cows eat grass. The sun comes down and shines, and the grass grows, and the cows eat grass, and they don't need to eat corn. And it is a solution for a lot of people right now. People are eating grass-fed beef and other animals that can find their own food. There is a big problem with overcultivation of corn crops uh, for feed crops. Uh, that, that has a lot to do with the kinds of breeds that have become popular. Um, Holstein cows, in particular, are very grain intensive. There, there's there's a lot of there are different kinds of animals that that can sustain themselves on less than we've these kind of breeds that we've developed for factory farming. So there there are people who are feeding themselves and their families this way. They don't have to go to the grocery store and and purchase something that gets shipped from very far away. You know I. I personally don't have the capacity or the equipment to grow enough beans to, to feed my family. Um, I, I would love to grow more beans. I don't have a combine. I can only harvest so many by hand. Um, I, can, I, can, I can do that, but I, that's a supplement to everything else that I can do, and meat is a supplement. It's another, it's another food source, and this is... You know, this is a fact of life right now. And I mean, we've had we have ten thousand years of cooperation with these animals, and I I, I really agree that that people need to recognize that they are our friends, and we owe everything to them. They are truly our best friends, and we need to like unify uh, in in attacking factory farming. That's the problem. It's factory farming. But there's another and thing we have to address, and that is the, the heavy meat consumption. There's an extremely heavy meat consumption, particularly in this country, which is not sustainable. Agreed. So education is, is, a, is a big factor in this. Agreed. And it, people, it's too easy for people just to you know, buy a hamburger on the corner and not have any acknowledgement of the fact that there's, you know, this beef is coming from a feedlot in Nebraska, and and that has its concomitants, like and it's terrible pollution, and just it's terrible for the souls of the of the people who work in the factories processing the meat, and the people who work on assembly lines, killing tens of thousands of animals. You know, it's it's horrific. It's absolutely horrific, and it's terrible, and it's terrible practice, and it, that's really what needs to be focused on and, and from from my perspective it's it's very easy to alienate all, like other meat eaters i'm very open-minded like i said i used to be a vegan i i come i'm coming from a place of of growing up in a in a food desert where you can't find ethical food any kind of ethical food and we can have a debate about ethical meat but you know i'm less interested in like finding out where we disagree and more interested in finding out where we agree, because that's going to help 
our, our common cause of eliminating the suffering of these hundreds of thousands of animals in factory farm conditions, pigs that can't turn around for their entire lives. They're in a little box. You know, anybody can go and look at pictures of this stuff, but I think that's the common enemy that we have. And, and we, you know, you don't eat meat or wear leather products, ideally, and I, I choosing meat from places where I know, and I know that those animals had the best life they possibly could. No, and and acknowledging that there's blood on my and that's that's for me to acknowledge and I think that's for everybody to acknowledge if they're going to choose to eat meat well I appreciate your bringing up the issue of, of having a rational and open minded conversation about this so thank you so much and we have another caller and I suspect that Ben might want to jump in so Thank you so much for that. Thank call. you, guys. Thanks for having the Thank conversation. You. Yeah. So, just a couple points to that, and I, I won't go too far in depth. But there, there were a couple words like cooperation, and cooperation is two-sided, and the choice of taking a dairy cow's child uh, immediately upon birth or of slaughtering their child for veal or for killing a beef cow, that's, that's one-sided. There, there, was no, <laughs> there was no consent in that, so it's not cooperation. Um, uh, but, but again, that, that's talking about the factory farming, and it's not really right. addressing what he was trying to bring up. So, but, I, yeah. but that's an important thing that people need to understand about factory farming and veal production and dairy farming. And, yeah. but, well, well there, there is... I mean, veal is throughout uh, local farming as well. I mean, that's what is done primarily with male, the male calves of dairy cows because they can't be used within dairy. So the, the baby calves have to go somewhere, and they're not going to use a dairy cow f- for, for beef. That, that cow's not going to grow to full size because that's not their specific cows for that. But I, I guess, you know, the one, there is 1%, 1% of beef of meat is uh, local, is local, free-range, organic, etc. 1%. So 99% of meat is raised in factory farm conditions. 98% of milk is factory farmed. So what we're talking about is 1% or 2% in the case of dairy, which is a complete outlier number. Um, and I think a lot of times that's giving, given exposure that's not you know, particularly um, the same as, as what is is the reality. And unfortunately, that's so reflective of, of the political culture in our nation today. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. So I don't... We have another caller on the line. Are you still there? Okay. <laughs> so... Gina. Hi. <laughs> I'm still here. <laughs> Listening intently. What, what is your study? What are you studying here at Goddard? Um, well, right now um, I'm in the licensure track for early childhood education. And um, the first two semesters I've combined, um, you know, meeting the requirements for licensure with um, my own interests, as I mentioned, kind of 
uh, weaving in sort of trauma-informed education um, with thinking about like embodied education. So um, I do a lot of work with a project-based curriculum model, um, which like with the kiddos looks like um, working with them, um, talking to them about their interests and letting uh, a topic or a focus emerge and then building a curriculum that's pretty integrated um, uh, with that topic and working with them on that for um, a significant amount of time. And um, this next semester, I'm going into my student teaching. So I'll um, be staying actually where I work um, at Roots and Fruits Preschool in South Portland, Maine, and kind of continuing um, that process with them. So right now, we're actually doing a musical theater project. <laughs> and um, the kids are um, creating their own story. And it sort of uh, has a restorative justice lens. Um, so if folks know the three Billy Goats gruff, um, there's a troll in that story that lives under a bridge. And he's kind of um, unkind. And actually, funny enough, uh, eating meat has come up a lot with the kiddos through the story because the troll wants to eat the goats. And the kids say that that's not very kind. Um, and so the story is that they've they've created their own characters that replace the goats. There's seven kiddos, and um, everything from a donut machine to a blue monster to um, a fox amongst the characters. And um, they created a story of how to help the troll, quote unquote, turn it around and make better choices. And um, some of the things that they're writing about right now are that they want to teach him how to do yoga and meditate. And they want to teach him how to farm in the back of the school and grow their own vegetables. Um, and they want to give him a home and become family with him and make him a comfy bed. So um, that's what I'm working on right now. I love that. <laughs> I love that you're, that you're working with kids and empowering them to rewrite stories. Yeah. Because that's, that's something that's been missing in our education system <laughs> as far back as I can remember that... I think my understanding is that our nation was founded on on principle, despite all all the the outrageous injustices that it was also based on, um, founded on the principle of of rewriting, revisiting our like our our constitution and making sure that it, it is a living thing. It's something that we can revisit and rewrite and rework and. And stories, we've lost all of that in mm -hmm. our culture, in, in our politics, political system, in our justice system, in our mm -hmm. everywhere. And it's, I think that's the most important thing that we can recognize and remember and realize is that w we live in a, a quote-unquote read-write universe as opposed to a read only so that mm -hmm. whatever stories we hear and we read if we don't engage them in that way of well how can we well how does this relate to to what i think and mm -hmm. what what i think is most important and to empower children mm -hmm. from a young age to think in those terms because when, when i think about education i've i've often thought about wanting to be a teacher, mm -hmm. but I could not imagine myself teaching in our school system because my approach would be to use that exact same approach 
at all age levels. Find out what, what they're interested in learning and damn school books, damn anything else. If kids want to learn to read or do math, let them decide when and where and how they want to do that, not force it down their throat. Yeah, it's um, interesting. The The school that I work at um, uh, is a private preschool, and we're actually in the process of potentially applying and um, getting public pre-K um, seats in the program. So it would be a mixed private and public um, program. And um, it's just, it's an interesting mix to try and hold true to the values that I believe as an educator and also to help empower and prepare kids to go into a system that's unjust and have the tools to um, make it through. (laughs) So um, it's uh, a lot of my work is about trying to, again, like stay embodied in the values. um, And I want to come back to that in a second, but also like bridging those values to uh, like living in the world that we live in here and now, which is imperfect at best. Um, And so with the kiddos, it's, yeah, definitely like getting them kindergarten ready and, um, and able to go in on the best foot so that they're able to succeed. Um, Where particularly kids who have special needs or kids of color, we know that they're targeted um, in the school systems. Um, And also just really, yeah, help them to feel like they have that power um, that their voices make a difference, that they can um, rewrite stories, that they um, can use the tools, like we call them peace leaders, and teach them that um, they're at the, the school to learn how to be a peace leader and to go out and bring that to other folks. Um, and so um, it's, it's also about like... Um, kind of taking apart some of the traditional power dynamics of teacher and student where like these, you know, kids are taught to, to be powerless and to sit and listen. And, um, and, uh, that is the opposite of what I want. So these kids, um, like I said, they're my teachers and I treat them as such. And I tell them that, um, they're leaders that can go out into the world and teach grownups about what they're learning. So, um, but the school itself is is special, and um, the the founder has a pedagogy that's in place, um, and it's called radical love. And that word, that term, is like out there. Like if you Google it, it has like something that it means um, to the world. But for her, what she created while she was at Goddard um, is a word that goes with each letter. Um, so like R is for revolution, A is altruism, dialogue, intention, commitment, accountability, love, learning, openness, vision, and empowerment. And so, um, at the school, I'm held accountable to living those values in my life. And then our role as teacher is seen to hold the kids accountable to that pedagogy as well. And how do you do that? Um, Yeah, it's tricky. Um, Part of it is in the structure of the school. So through the implicit and explicit curriculum, um, as I mentioned, the the project-based curriculum that's emergent um, and through other like democratic approaches where the kids have as much say in the day as we do and and how we learn and grow together. 
by valuing multiculturalism in the classroom, using multiple languages and honoring traditions and holidays and ways of being that aren't just um, like white middle-class America. And um, by doing my own work to um, deconstruct like places in my life where I can't live up to radical love because of indoctrination and so um, part of it, yeah, is holding myself accountable to being embodied in that way. And what does accountability mean in that context? Accountability means um, holding yourself up to the values of radical love. And when you can or a mistake is made, um, looking at that and seeing what you can do to change it next time. So um, accountability, I think, in like mainstream culture is a lot about punishment. Um, and uh, it's, it's not that. That's not what I mean. I mean more growth, learning, um, development, um, taking in feedback from others and sitting with it. And for me, it's about letting the thoughts and the feedback um, become fully embodied, like not just a thought, but a feeling, um, an emotion, a sense in my body, and then it can move through to action. So you're talking about having conversations around the actual emotional responses that people are having or the things that are arising in, in circumstances. Yeah. Because we all make mistakes and of we course. all do things. We all trespass upon each other mm-hmm. and we all, in a sense, overstep our bounds and hurt other people, mm-hmm. whether, whether we do it completely unintentionally or whether we do it in a moment of mm-hmm. reaction mm-hmm. or rage or whatever. Mm-hmm. How... I'm curious the process that you use to engage those those conversations and that that me that method of accountability. Um, well, <clears throat> in myself, with others, with kids, anything specific you want to know or whatever <laughs> whatever struck a chord in you. Okay. Um, and all of any or all of it. So. Um, because these, these are the issues that we deal with in life all, all the time. Yeah, absolutely. I'll speak first about myself, I guess. And then, I don't know, I have a lot of different thoughts, um, um, about that. But, um, for me, like it starts with usually dialogue and, and listening. And, um, I have a practice um, that I've developed through like my somatic experiencing practice that is about, um, it's about how to stay embodied and really listen and hear what someone's saying. So not just thinking I hear what someone's saying, but um, being able to feel and sense into it and sit with it. And sometimes, when something comes up, there may be a conflict, it may be really hard. And so um, in that case, like somatic experiencing has tools um, and what is talked about a lot is taking things in small and manageable doses so as not to overwhelm. 
And so a lot of it is just about taking on little bits at a time and then coming back to ground and center. Um, I exercise a lot and I meditate. Those are things that I do to, to ground and center. Um, but, you know, in like a school environment, when things come up in the day, um, like conflict with co-teachers or a conflict with the kiddos, it's really important for me to take deep breaths into ground before I delve into anything. Um, with kiddos, it often starts with dialogue as well, but um, dialogue, again, doesn't work without listening to everyone's story. So um, I'm learning more about restorative justice, and I think I'm, I'm hopefully using the tools correctly, but... Um, I just try to work with the kids and meet them where they're at and give them love. And there's no good or bad. We look at the choices that they make and sometimes need to be really creative with solutions. Um, and looking at the big picture too of like, where is this behavior coming from? Like what's the root of the behavior and dealing with that with kids and sometimes even co-teachers. And sometimes it's really big. Um, and so for me, um, supporting kids in the day-to-day, -day, supporting myself in the day-to-day, -day, it is inextricably linked with bigger social justice work with looking at like dealing with um, systemic racism and sexism and poverty and um, how politics and social systems and capitalism works and impacts um, the context of kids' lives, of my life, of co-teachers' lives, and then how... Um, that works when we're all trying to come together and strive for a pedagogy of radical love. And it's tricky. It's complicated. Hmm. Yeah. And this is WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, the Magical Mystery Tour. My guests in the studio are Gina Forbes and Ben Hutchins. They're graduate students at Goddard in the education program. So how do you bring in those, those powerful issues when you're working with preschool children? And, or, and do you? Like powerful issues around the social, social justice? justice? Yeah, and, and also <coughs> Carla mentioned that something about <laughs> how you work with EDU student, education students yeah. here with so, social justice issues. Yeah. Talk about that. Sure. Um, I just want to say about the kids and in a classroom, um, we talk about social justice issues. Um, I think, I don't know, in the schools I went to, well, I went to Catholic school, so that's a whole nother story. But um, in other schools I've been in, um, issues of like race and gender and class and other things are often... Um, if they're not explicitly taboo, there's a certain energy around it um, that's definitely fear-based. And I think a lot of teachers I've talked to fear repercussions if they speak openly about topics of social justice in the classroom. And that's, that just won't work <laughs> if you're actually trying to do a social justice-based education. Um, so... Um, openness you have to just dialogue with kids um, and in early childhood uh, in obviously like developmentally appropriate ways but um, here on uh, at Goddard um, 
I last residency there was I, I don't know how much I can get into, but there there was a um, a whole host of events that sort of came up simultaneously, and um, there was a a group of students that kind of formed and listed these um, some issues around. Um, yeah, administration. Context- contextualize and it by all means. So, um, at the last residency, there was um, several students of color that um, spoke up about their experiences of racism on campus. So that was one thing. Um, another thing was that um, Carla Hasmoskowitz, who's a professor in the education program here took a leave of absence and sent an email that was supposed to go to the entire student body saying that, um, you know, she was leaving specifically to create a space for a faculty member of color. Um, Aside from one uh, faculty member who was going to be there just for that semester. But um, there's a real problem I think it's campus-wide here at Goddard with a lack of um, racial diversity in, within the faculty. Um, and that email that Carla sent out was n- never reached the education students. And it didn't reach most students on campus. I later found out through being on student council that um, some members of different programs got it, but it was left up to the student council representatives from each program to decide if the email should go out or not. And so that raised some other concerns around um, potential censorship or just a lack of clarity about um, systems of communication on campus and how the lack of transparency like further um, supported uh, institutional racism here on campus. And um, the other major focus that the students had brought up was that there's a Seattle cohort of the edu program and every semester when it's time for graduation um there's a group of seattle students and there was a student who was here in vermont and had gone to seattle and she was kind of a link but um those students would try to fundraise for the graduation of the seattle students um, because they wanted to have their graduation at the Duwamish Center. Now, the Duwamish is the Native American tribe um, that's in that area and uh, whose land was usurped and is being used now by the Seattle um, campus. And so um, I believe it's $1,000. And Goddard as the institution didn't set money aside for that graduation, could not, supposedly could not, fund that thousand dollars and um and then through kind of looking into that there's a whole host of uh disparities around funding that seattle program which is majority students of color and faculty of color so um students brought that those issues to the attention of president kenny there was like a little sit-in in his office and um he said he would respond in two weeks. And um, so after we left residency, which is, again, just a short little period of time, um, myself and um, the other student council representative, Laura Freilich, 
kind of got together with the group of students and sent out an email to the EDU community and said, hey, let's let's gather, let's come together, let's form a committee, let's look at these issues and see what can be done. Um, and so that's what we did. And uh, it's just been this one semester. Um, there, in some ways, we got a lot done, and in other ways, there's just so much more work to do. Um, but we're still in the beginning phases of putting together a structure of students in the EDU community who want to make a difference on these issues here on campus and who want to make policy changes and who want to see long-term change within the institution. And how do you feel about the openness and, and space for creating such change here? I think students over the history of Goddard have tried this and worked on some of these issues time and again. I think faculty are committed and hardworking, and I've seen faculty council working on these issues. Um, I've seen student council working on similar issues. I've seen other programs now um, working on similar issues. And I, I feel um, frustrated that uh, it seems like just bureaucratically, um, there are stumbling blocks along the way and that structurally within the institution that there's a lot of, um, I, I'm just going to name it dysfunction that <clears throat> um, makes policy change hard within the institution. Um, so again, it's been one semester um, and I feel like it's just a challenge that we're here for 10 days and then we all spread out and there aren't really great systems of communication. So like a lot of the time we're meeting over Google Hangouts and it's hard to hear each other or someone gets kicked off. And um, it's difficult to work on these issues when money hasn't been allocated to um, communication systems that would help us organize or, you know, our emails still aren't getting through to the people that they need to get through to. Um, and um, I, through student council, have been learning more about how, f like, financially where the college is at. And it just seems like there are a lot of issues that need to be taken care of in order for, like, the infrastructure and the stability to be in place for some of these things to um, be really looked at in an effective way. So um, I'm not sure if Goddard actually is in survival mode or just functioning still like they're on survival mode, but I think there needs to be a shift administratively to thinking more critically and more creatively about how um, our mission can be implemented in a larger way and in a way that really embodies the social justice piece and not just nods to it. So it sounds like this issue of Goddard being in survival mode or or perceiving itself as being in survival mode is causing them to shut down in a way and 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 making it difficult to communicate perhaps i mean i guess i'm still learning about the systems here too um and and what's at play in how hard it is to make effective change um, but um, I had the pleasure of meeting with the board of trustees over the student council retreat weekend and the widespread majority of students across programs um, that I heard from other representatives and that was spoken to the board was that students still aren't sure if Goddard is stable financially, if 
Um, there are resources to put to technology to um, rethinking how we do things here on campus. And something as simple as getting a campus email sent through, um, these things need to, to be happening in an effective way. Um, so I, I, I feel also like um, President Kenny himself, I'm not sure how much he embodies the values of social justice. Like, I don't think he's a bad person. I think he's a good person in a lot of ways. I've been able to understand more deeply the good he's done for the college. Um, and I think he has a desire to live out the social justice statement. But um, in speaking to him more fully, I don't know if he actually knows how. And the board of trustees, I don't know if they're holding him accountable to that either. So for me, coming to uh, a college where I'm paying a significant amount of money, I'm going to be in debt for a very long time, um, that the mission to me and like what the message that was projected to me coming here is that this is a progressive institution that's supposed to be embodying democratic values, um, the values of social justice and making change out in the world. Um, the institution itself is still figuring out how to do that within. And I expect a leader to be able to step up and say, these values are the most important thing. And even if I don't know how to do it, I'm willing to learn and hold me accountable to that. Um, but I don't think that that's quite happening. And I hope that we'll be moving more toward that through through active dialogue, through working with student council, through um, petitions and proposals and just building relationships that um, are effective for campus-wide change. So in your conversation, you say you, you have spoken directly with, with Bob Kenny. Yes. Um, and you've spoken with other administrators who are in that loop? Yeah. Um, the um, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting his name. The Lu Lewis? Lewis, the dean of... Um, I'm blanking. This, the dean of student affairs, is it Lewis? Something like, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm blanking now. It's been a little bit. I, I actually did take a break between um, the end of the semester and <laughs> That's okay. So, All those, those um, little details aren't that important. Yeah. Um, I've spoken with them and um, I've spoken, well, I'm on student council, so, so um, we've worked with the board and I have taken kind of the, Laura and I have worked on taking the values that the EDU for Social Justice Committee sort of put out as our priorities and um, and talked to student council about them and said, hey, like, where are y'all? Like, how do you feel? And everyone's really on board um, with moving those um, priorities forward. Um, and Kateriana Baker, who's another amazing activist and Goddard student, um, just got voted to the student um, representative for the Board of Trustees. Mm. And she's been a facilitator on student council. Um, I've spoken with her and she had, I'm, I just like bow down to her experience. Um, and I, I have a feeling that, you know, I'm one voice um, and I was able to speak with some folks in the administrative loop, but 
Kateriana is very well connected and student council. Um, there's other amazing leaders on student council who are very well connected. So I believe that our voices are being amplified. Um, and in addition, there's a new cohort, the circle of councils that um, represents people from across campuses, across programs. Um, and there, I think, echoing many of the same priorities to um, the administration. So I think that, you know, I've done a little bit of research that people have tried before. And um, I'm hoping that now is a critical moment in light of all that's happening politically, too, where Goddard is just going to be forced to step up our game. How, how, how heard do you guys feel on these issues by by Bob Kenny and, and Dr. Lewis and, and people like that. I mean, do you feel that that they are really listening and that they're open to your concerns in a meaningful way? I personally feel half heard. I feel that uh, the message has gone through and fallen a little bit flat from there, that I feel like there's just a, a loss of like real direct action steps. Like our response, we got a response from President Kenny after we sent him um, or gave him our demands as an EDU group. And um, it was like, yes, I hear you. Your voice is important and we're working on these issues. And there's a committee that's working on trying to get diversity into the faculty. And there's... Um, another, like there's some research going on and then it's, but the, the a, there's no action steps. Everything's very vague. Um, so there's a lack of accountability. There's just a lack of accountability mm-hmm. and I don't know. Yeah. And, and can that be, can, because you do have some experience in setting up systems of accountability and having these kind of conversations, can you envision a way of engaging them and creating some means of account of accountability for for the Goddard administration because that this has been a classic um, issue here at Goddard yeah. for for decades. I think it's the case pretty much everywhere. The interests of 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 the people on the ground versus mm-hmm. and in collaboration with. Mm-hmm. Administrations who are who are concerned with with other things that are uh, somewhat removed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I appreciate like the hard work that's being done around financial sustainability and whatnot. Um, but um, and there are some really great administrators who are working on fundraising and creating more funds so that there can be scholarships for students of color to come here, or um, and increasing diversity in other ways. Um, I, I am hopeful. I'm very hopeful that, um, with Kateriana on the board of trustees, um, and with myself, Laura and other student council members backing Kateriana up, um, that we can work with the board around accountability, um, their own with each other. And then, um, it's my understanding that the board is is sort of an supposed to be an accountability, a group that holds the president um, accountable on the highest level. So um, I'm hopeful in that regard that that could be an avenue to produce some meaningful change. It's a complicated issue. Yeah. And <laughs> and, it's, and these things are, are becoming more and more critical 
I mean, we're we're now living at. It's hard to imagine that after everything that we should have learned in our society, that we could be in in a place of of the most extreme um, ideological polarity in in this nation, mm-hmm. and all the more reason for institutions like Goddard to be stepping up to the plate. Absolutely. I, I did appreciate, I don't know if you got it, Ben, but the email from President Kenny that he signed um, in uh, in the opposition of the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. Um, so I appreciated that coming from the administration, and I certainly hope that um, this school will uh, continue on a path toward becoming a sanctuary school and a place that upholds the... Um, welcoming and inclusivity of immigrants and all folks from different walks of life, but we need to step up our game and walk the the walk and not just talk the talk, I think. And and really honoring and respecting the voices of, of everyone. Absolutely. On a on an equal footing, which is the basis of of your your study and and the issue that you're so passionate about with animal rights, animal liberation, is the respecting of all creatures as equals. Yeah. Absolutely. And I just want to say to Ben, he was a real, he was a big influence on me my first semester here <laughs> at Goddard, and he's been active in the EDU for Social Justice Committee as well. So how, Ben's... How, how was he? I mean, talk about that. Oh, well, um, he talked about a lot of his beliefs, but... Um, I don't know if you can hear it in his voice, but he's very passionate about his beliefs. And um, you, you can't help it. I mean, yeah, you, I could see him on the verge of tears at times mm-hmm. when he was talking, and this, yeah, yeah. And um, I read, I, I read your thesis almost completely. I only had, I had less than a day to, but I, I read through as much as I could. So, cool. yeah, awesome. And it, it, it brought up all those questions, those issues for me again that I have thought about, but being a privileged human being on the planet who sits in a position of of tremendous power, um, it has been very easy to let those those things slide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. and I think that that occurs in for, or at least it's it's a possibility for everybody in a position of power. And I think it's unfortunate that in institutions that administrations have more power or they're closer to the, the levers of power than, than the people like faculty and the students who are the, the blood and sinew and breath of life of the institution, mm-hmm. of the institutions. Mm-hmm. And I think we forget that. It's like what's happening in this country politically. Mm. We the people have become completely subverted to the the completely distorted and dysfunctional political system. Mm-hmm. To yeah. the point that the people only matter to the extent that they influence how elected officials can be elected. Yeah. And because of our justice system... I did an interview very recently where we found that one one out of four people in this country are convicted felons, three quarters of which were wrongfully convicted. So that's a huge number of people who are disenfranchised, completely disenfranchised. Mm-hmm. So we, 
it's an amazingly dysfunctional um, society we, we're living in. Yeah, it's definitely a tricky time where um, we have to organizationally be sustainable and learn how to survive in capitalism if we want to be an entity and also uh, simultaneously undo those systems that and work together. And we, yeah, we have to work. We also we have to work together not only amongst ourselves but also amongst the people that we find ourselves in opposition to. Absolutely. And that's absolutely that's tricky. I'm we we have about two minutes. I'm wondering cool. if either of you have any insights on how an experience in working with people on on the far other side of of where where you guys are coming from. <laughs> <laughs> well, I heard where Ben came from, but um, <laughs> I uh, I came from southeastern Connecticut and um, and was raised Catholic. And um, my I have family members who are as far opposite on the political spectrum from myself. And um, for me, embodying radical love is is about loving everyone yeah and um that's not an easy thing to do and i have good practice in that am i am i just through being who i am i think so ben i don't have any experience with that (laughs) (laughs) do you have any what can you talk about your lack of experience of that perhaps because it's I know for me, I mean, I have experience on both sides of that, the experience of rage and, and feeling like I, it's, I go through moments where I, I just can't love certain people, certain things, and then somehow I manage to get to the other side. <laughs> you know, I, I, do have, I do have a history of working uh, with groups, uh, working for, for, for change, and... Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't know what. <laughs> I think. I think it's difficult for me, honestly. Like I. I think I really struggle with that, and working in that capacity. Uh, I think it's probably it's partially because of the issues we talked about earlier. Is that there's not. Those are those are issues that are mocked, often even by the most progressive, people. Or misunderstood. Right, or misunderstood, exactly. Deeply meaningful ways. Exactly. So, I mean, going to, uh, for instance, like an environmental um, protest or like environmental like meeting and then there being barbecue served Mm. um, is so deeply problematic on so many levels. And then like having to, you know, not feeling comfortable explaining that even when it's supposed to be a very open uh, dialogue. Uh, it's not acceptable. So I think like for me and with those issues that I hold so, so dear and that, you know, the, these ideas of suffering and that the ability to suffer is the only consideration in that regard, uh, you know, the, the Jeremy Bentham philosophy, that's a difficult thing to carry into um, any type of social justice uh, setting because not everyone feels that way. It's been wonderful having you on. Thank, Thank you. you. Really, Thanks. I've really enjoyed this so much. Me too. Yeah, same here. <laughs> I'm always available anytime if, <laughs> if, you, want, <laughs> if you want some 
some crazy phone calls. And okay. I'll bring, I'll bring them to you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Ben Hutchins and Gina Forbes. Thanks. This has been the Magical Mystery Tour. Have a great week. <laughs>